Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with strength and power coach at Altis, Jason Heller. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really excited to get Jason on the podcast today. So Jason has got a really varied role at Altis, uh, incorporating some of the uh, social media and some of the education stuff, as well as obviously a big percentage of his time uh, coaching either in the gym or on the track. So the basis of this discussion was uh, formed around a couple of articles that Jason wrote recently on acceleration. So we go through the principles of acceleration, um, teaching it and coaching it, um, programming for team sport athletes and for track athletes. We also discuss a lot around the transference of the work that uh, Jason predominantly does in the gym and then transferring that onto the track. So that's a really really interesting little chat that we have about that about the importance of that is, is if you don't have that philosophy, then if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. So being able to look critically at any of the information that puts out there and figure out, okay, does that fit into my philosophy and how I operate or my constraints or my environment or my population and, and really thinking critically about that, I think is becoming a lost art with all this information overload that we have. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So over to the episode with Jason. Hope you enjoy and I will chat to you soon. Jason, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you for giving up your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. That's good to have you, mate. So anyone who doesn't know who you are, 
just want to give us a little bit of background on yourself, um, what you're currently doing, education, etc. Yeah, uh, born and raised in Michigan, completed my degree in exercise science there. Uh, originally started as a finance degree, worked three years in an accounting office and realized that wasn't for me. So I made the switch over to coaching. I always knew that strategizing and, and putting a plan and structure to things was something I wanted to do. And so originally I thought that was in the finance sector, but I realized the passion for sport really driven me to exercise science and then strength conditioning a little bit more specifically. Um, so I finished that up with an internship at Western Michigan University Division One program in, in Michigan, working with the Olympic sports, so a lot of variety and different teams there. Uh, from there, came out to what was at the time World Athletic Center for an internship, and I was fortunate enough with the timing to be offered a position after that. We've since uh, rebranded and changed the name to Altus, so that's where I currently stand as the strength and power coach, uh, working with mostly the short sprinters, um, with big role being in the weight room, as well as a large role now on the track, um, and then a lot of secondary responsibilities following all the coaching responsibilities. Nice. So let's talk about Altis. So the big boom in there, kind of the visibility on social media and everywhere it seems. What's the what's the aims of Altis as a as a business? Uh, a, a big objective of ours is is to professionalize amateur sport. Uh, with amateur sport really being the focus on track and field, and and a lot of what we do and the direction that we take is reactionary in nature to the sport performance world. Um, sat down with Dr. Ralph Mann, who's a biomechanist for USA Track and Field yesterday and, and had some good conversations. And part of it was about the the seminars that he would hold every year and and how in the 80s and 90s, it was like pulling teeth. You know, you get some of the best coaches from around the country in a room together and nobody wants to talk about what they're doing because they all have secrets and, and they're uncomfortable having those conversations. And I think it's changed a bit since then, but it's still a big a big vision of Altus is to, to really turn that on its head. So through our social media and marketing and, and everything that we do, um, as well as the education initiatives and, and what we try to do from a performance standpoint, it's all about being transparent and, and putting it out there. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly and, and letting people see it and hopefully giving you know future generations a, a better idea of, of what high performance sport does or can look like, or at least in this instance it does. Um, as well as just trying to, to mentor those. So a big, a big progression in a lot of the staff at Altis, at Altis has come from a mentorship relationship. And, and we find that very important. And we think, you know, a lot of typical education will sometimes miss the boat on that. And, and there's a lot to be learned from a mentor and, and grabbing on and hanging on to that. And so that's, that's kind of where we see ourselves fitting into the grand scheme of things with the hope of, of everything coming back to, to track and field, which is where the passion lies. So mm -hmm. finding ways to professionalize that through through other means. So there's been a massive drive on, obviously, a staple of that aim, which is um, education and something that obviously you're involved in in the education of, of coaches. But there's seems like tons of different avenues that Altus are going down to actually provide that medium through their kind of video content and stuff. And this is something that, that you're involved in quite heavily as well. Yeah. So it's, it's really just trying to find different avenues to reach the masses um, with, with a big piece of a lot of it being self-directed. 
So we've got the foundation course that you can progress through at your own pace uh, with a lot of supplemental material. It's, it's a lot of different mediums through text and video and outside resources. Um, then we have the 360 library, which is hundreds of hours of some subscription-based content and some free content. Um, but all of that, again, is video-based. And our apprentice coach program is, is, is really cool and, and really unique, in my opinion, where we open our doors for a week to, to a group of, of athletes, coaches, people from around the world uh, that will come in, observe the training, get hands-on, uh, get right next to the athletes, ask the athletes questions, ask coaches questions during the session, and then a little bit more formal education in the afternoons with lectures and, and Q&As and, and the like. So I think it, it really provides a cool opportunity and, and a well-rounded educational opportunity to get involved with all these different mediums. So your so your role is split between obviously hands-on coaching, the stuff you do in the gym, stuff you do on the track. But one thing that I obviously got introduced to you was on the social media front. How important is that side of things? And how how have you kind of managed to transition into that side of things? Um, but how important is it for artists to, to maximize that? Yeah, it's, it's hugely important to us for a couple of reasons. Um, one, quite honestly, it's a... It's, uh, it's a free vehicle for, for advertising and to get our products out there and, and everything else that we do. Uh, but secondarily, it's just, it's just a really easy vehicle for us to be transparent with what we do. So that falls very much in line with our mission and our vision. Um, so we're, we're very active with Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'll go with a little bit different target for each of those. And, and it's been a constant process to put some structure behind that and, and try to figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, but for us, it's, it's giving some behind the scenes, look, showing the good, the bad and the ugly, uh, and just trying to spread the word and, and start conversations. It's been quite a transition for me. Um, I was never too active on it beforehand. Uh, I was always against it a little bit at the start. I see, you know, some pros and cons, everybody has a voice and that makes it very hard to, you know, really find out what's good and, and what's bad out there. And I'm not saying everything that we put out there is great or, or should be followed, you know, with, with blind eyes and ears, but it's just, it's just an opportunity to start those conversations, like I said. And so it becomes very important for, for how we operate. For someone who's on both sides of the fence, the coach side, who actually wants the information and the person who's the deliverer of that information, how do you um, sort the, the signal from the noise in terms of what is good and what is bad? Not bad, but not as good. Yeah, I think I think one way to go about it is is try to find individuals who have some trends and some patterns of success uh, rather than than one offs. Um, and not that the one offs may not have some good information, but if you really want to try to determine between the two, I think that's one one good option to look at. Uh, and then a big part of it as well, I think, is is having a philosophy as a coach and as a practitioner and understanding you know, what it is that you stand for. Uh, a quote from Alexander Hamilton um, about the importance of that is, is if you don't have that philosophy, then if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. So being able to look critically at any of the information that puts out there and figure out, okay, does that fit into my philosophy and how I operate or my constraints or my environment or my population and, and really thinking critically about that, I think, is becoming a lost art with all this information overload that we have. But it's, it's important not to, not to lose that side of things. 
Cool. So just moving on to um, the kind of chat that I'd, that we'd, we'd spoke about, and it's kind of guided by a couple of the articles that you'd written over the last per year or so. One thing that seems to be a, always a constant hot topic is, uh, is periodization, and that fits in nicely with one of the articles that, that you wrote. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about your philosophy around periodization then, and then talk a little bit about specifically the kind of philosophy at Altis? Yeah, um, it, it's definitely a topic of, of hot discussion lately, and, and I've really been enjoying some of the stuff that John Kiley's been putting out around it. And it's really got me to, to question a lot of what we face a lot of our formal education on, uh, just as a system, at least throughout the United States, and, and a lot of what we do, whether we're questioning general adaptation syndrome and some of the advances in, in scientific understandings that we've had since then, and, and looking at you know various counters to that, whether it's hormesis or activation theory. Um, still trying to work through it all and see really what does periodization, what does periodization mean and, and where does it fit? Uh, but for now, we, we look at periodization and, and how we operate at Altus through what we term a complex parallel lens. Uh, and I know there's a lot of different terminology now around periodization. <clears throat> and so some folks may call it something slightly different, but for us, all that really means is, is we have three major objectives on the track and we have three major objectives in the weight room and we'll get into those, but from a standpoint of periodization, it's, it's touching each of those objectives each week, at least for most individuals, most of the time. So on the track, that's acceleration, development, speed development, and speed endurance. And then in the weight room, it's for us dynamic effort, max effort, and repetitive effort, or more of a work capacity focus. So we'll hit each of those each day on the track. Sometimes they'll match up with acceleration and max strength, speed and dynamic effort, and then speed endurance and work capacity which makes for a really nice blend of the training. Sometimes it won't for various individuals with different KPIs, but it really will allow us to touch each of those any given time of the week. And we just feel that's a little bit more appropriate for this population. Uh, developing athletes, maybe you want more of a concentrated block type periodization, working on specific abilities and then building from there. But with the training age that we work with and, and the skill level and ability that we have here with the athlete group, it really works uh, quite well with complex parallel. So each of them boxes, what does what do they actually look like? Would you mind defining each one of them boxes and how that translates to what it looks like on the track or on the in the gym? Yeah. So if we look at acceleration development, um, we're looking at at shorter reps. For us, it's typically anywhere from ten meters out to possibly forty meters. Um, our speed work usually comes kind of building off of that more 60 to 90 meters. And our speed endurance will come from anywhere, typically from maybe 120 meters up to, to 250 meters. Uh, at least that's with the short sprinters. Um, and then that's going to change a lot throughout the year. So we're going to take a gradual progression from the grass and flats out to the track with spikes, with blocks, solo runs, and then running next to somebody and slowly building from there. But hopefully that lays out a, a general idea of, of how we'll target those. Um, it gets a lot more in-depth than that and, and happy to go into it. Uh, but then as far as the weight room, our zone one, we call it for the dynamic effort. It's, it's long range of motion exercises. For us, we really like the clean grip snatch. It allows 
for a lot of time really to generate velocity on the bar. Um, our, our max strength is our compound lifts. We're looking at intensities 85% and up. Uh, higher rest, three to five minutes, lower reps, anywhere from, from one to five typically. And then more of the work capacity type sessions. It's, it's really limiting the rest, uh, higher reps, 10 to 12 possibly. And then we'll use a lot of unilateral work there just as an avenue to increase some time under tension. We're very particular and, and quite careful with our prescription on the work capacity. Uh, obviously, with our population, hypertrophy is, is a contraindicated for most people at least. Um, so that, that's one of the zones that, that comes out pretty early in the year for some individuals that they may never even see that type of loading parameter. Um, but it really just, just comes down to an individual basis after that. Mm-hmm. Is there any common threads that run through, re- run regularly through programs depending on, you know, not dependent on the individual? And is there, is there certain aspects that get manipulated more depending on the individual? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's all over the board. The population's all over the board. They have pretty high training age and, and a lot of them have pretty high strength levels. Uh, at this level for them, the, the big difference maker typically is not going to be the development of maximal strength. Whereas a, a youth athlete or somebody a little bit less developed, will see a lot of increase in, in speed and, and acceleration through training that ability. Not so much here, but we still get the occasional individual that that's not quite at the level we'd like them to be at. Um, so they may have a little bit higher concentration of that max strength work. Um, some of the females, for instance, may have a little bit more of that work capacity work because they're not going to put on size quite the same way that a lot of the men do. So they may have a, a higher density of it and or it may carry through longer throughout the training year. For most of them, we'll take max strength through the competitive season and bring that down to, to once every 10 or so days, just enough of the stimulus to, for them to feel that tension and to feel strong. They're very much connected with that feeling and tied to that. So we want to keep them with that and, and feeling confident through the competitive season. So while we may not necessarily look at increases in strength to, to further their performance, and we think it's, it's quite important for them to, to do what they need to do on the track. So what supplementary... Uh, work are these guys doing around if obviously as we as we know that that isn't going to be the um the downfall of someone not performing on the track is their strength and power at the level that you're dealing with is there anything that is making more of an impact um directly around what they do in the gym like supplementary work yeah a few things that we'll do uh sort of from that avenue is well a lot of posterior chain work um a lot of work for the hamstrings especially uh for that for us that usually starts isometrically uh and or eccentrically it it depends a little bit on the individual and the time of the year but that's usually one of two areas that we'll start with and then progressing that into into what we refer to as reflexive eccentric which i believe came from burkashansky to begin with Um, but it's really fast light loads really trying to trying to get a quick eccentric contraction out of it and in some ways trying to replicate what they're going to experience when they're sprinting. Uh, and then the other avenue for the supplementary work uh, is a lot of the Bosch type stuff that, that's coming out and, and being quite popular. For us, we're still, we're still figuring where exactly that fits within our methodology and our philosophy. 
But for right now, it's it, it almost serves as a bridge, so to speak, between the warm-up that we'll do in the weight room and the main pieces of the session. Um, so it's a lot of a lot of context and stability around the high knee or A position. I think Bosch refers to it as a hip lock position. Uh, but really trying to target that position, which is obviously very important to sprinting, through a different environment, through some different velocities, loads, and and really hoping to allow our athletes to get quite comfortable coming in and out of that position, as well as the contact on the ground. So that's that's where the stability stuff comes in, the, the videos I've seen on your online with the uh, kettlebells either side? Yeah, so so the hanging band technique, we, we refer to it as, um, but that, that's where a lot of that will fit, uh, as well as uh, quick steps or, or anything you may have seen along those lines, different, more track specific looking drills and exercises they will typically fit in that area some of the upper body uh presses with a hanging band technique that will be a little bit more of the main session um at least on some days that we target upper body which doesn't typically happen very often but for that we're just looking at stability through trunk and core and, and as well as shoulders and upper body just trying to get some almost system 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 excuse me, stability throughout that. That's a tough one there. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jason. Hope you're enjoying part one. So in part two, we discuss more on programming acceleration for team sport athletes and how that may differ or may not differ to how it is coached for uh, track athletes. But just before we get into part two, just want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness specialize in performance gym equipment based out of their headquarters in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So I saw the work of uh, Greg at Black Box over at the gym at Everton, which is um, really impressive, uh, great standard of work, really good kit. So if you want to know more about Black Box Fitness, visit them online at blkboxfitness.com or follow them on Twitter at BLK Box Fitness. So all their equipment is shipped out of their HQ and made and shipped from their HQ in Belfast, like I said. Uh, really good guys behind the scenes. Um, so if you do or are in the market for full gym refurb, um, bits and bobs, please get in touch with the guys at Black Box Fitness. So over, in, over into part two with Jason. Hope you enjoy and I'll chat to you soon. So when you say you're struggling to see where it fits in the philosophy, have you been do it, doing it long enough to see that it is um, a good use of your time, the athlete's time? Yeah, I think we can give a definite answer on that. Um, okay. It, it's definitely, for us, it's definitely clear that there's benefit to it and that it fits somewhere. Uh, so I think the next step is is how much and where. So it's hard to fully get away from some of the other work, some of the more traditional or conventional work with, with some loads and, and velocities under load. But for this and, and with this population and, and possibly with any population, I'm still not sure. Um, it, it definitely, I think has a, a time and a place. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I was chatting to some people about recently is velocity based training. And it's, 
it seemed a couple of years ago, it seemed to be all the all the thing that everyone was speaking about and there was you know lots of hype around it. And it seems to have died off. That's just from my angle. Maybe I'm not seeing what's out there and whatnot. But is that some is that a um is them techniques something that you still utilize or have ever utilized or don't? So we've we've played with it a little bit. Um with our dynamic effort, a big piece of that is the velocity. Uh mm-hmm. with our constraints as as a group and as a company, we don't have the resources, uh time, money, expertise to really dive too far into the tracking and monitoring of that. And we've played with a, du- a couple of different methods, but nothing that was really sustainable. Um, so from an athlete's perspective, all we want them thinking on those days is, is to move the bar as fast as they can. And ideally, we're going to see some progressive overload and it's going to get faster each time. But we realize that that's not always the case, especially when they come in off the track. And, and all of the different factors and variables that come into play, they may not be feeling the same that they felt the last time they did that session. And so really our programming uh, numbers and, and loads are based more off of a, a perceived exertional intensity with the idea of on that dynamic effort day, more velocity, max effort day, a slightly higher load, repetitive effort day, a little bit more work in the same amount of time. Uh, it's just tough to really get too far into basing it entirely off the velocity when we don't have, like I said, the resources to, to really do that justice. So you're going off like a, a reps left in the tank type scenario? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one way to look at it. Um, so, so I guess in addition to that, we also don't go off of a percentage of one RM. Um, each day they come in, they're coming in a little bit different. And so whether that's because of how they slept or how they ate or how they trained at the track or, you know, all the different things that come into play, uh, we're, we're a very adaptable in the weight room in that regard. Uh, everything we do is, is, is supplementary to what we're doing on the track. And so in a lot of ways, we're trying to safeguard uh, and manage fatigue to allow the execution and the quality and the intensity that we like to see on the track to occur. So we'll just give them some ranges. We'll give them an idea. Uh, over time, they'll develop a much better idea. A lot of it's conversations. A lot of it's uh, much more subjective in nature rather than objective. But it seems to to do the job quite well for what we need out of the weight room. Cool. And one thing that you mentioned in a, in a couple of articles that you've written is the zonal system. Yeah. Can you just give us some definitions around that and what you talk about in the articles. Yeah. So, so when I talk about dynamic, dynamic effort, max effort, repetitive effort, um, that's zonal system. Well, okay. That's the zonal system. So all, all we've really done is tried to simplify it for the athletes. And, uh, as part of the foundation course, the online Altus course, there's a piece in there from Stu McMillan on, on categories and, and coming up with categorizations. And he talks about how that will allow us to add meaning and reduce complexity. And, and so for us, that's a big thing, uh, especially targeting the athlete group. So we want to add meaning to everything they do in the weight room. We want them to come in with some intention and an understanding. And we feel that by just applying a zonal categorization to those different uh, objectives works quite well for that. It'll also reduce the complexity. So they'll have an idea. They'll come in. They'll ask me, what's, what's today? I'll tell them zone one. Right away, they know that, okay, it's, it's all about velocity today. I need to get some speed on the bar. I don't necessarily need to put a bunch of plates on the bar because a lot of them still have a tendency to try to do that. They still have egos. They still We train at a gym that, that uses 
or, or houses uh, NFL players and Major League Baseball players and UFC fighters. So they see a lot of people pushing a lot of weight, but they'll know it's zone one. It's about speed. It's not about load. Or it is zone three. It, it is max strength. Today is about load. I'm going to get after it a little bit and get ready for that. Um, so for us, again, it's just adding meaning and, and reducing complexity so they have some intention and a better understanding of the process. Cool. Just talk about that uh, the foundation course. Just what, what's, the, what's the kind of starting point for anyone to, to come in at and what will they leave with? What's the, what's the kind of aim? Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly biased, but I think it's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, it it's, has application to, to all sports and, and many practitioners uh, at many different levels. And, and I think the reason that it has all that is just a combined experience authors. Um, so Dan Paff has done a lot of it. We've, we've resourced some outside individuals. Uh, Matt Jordan and Sue McMillan did a lot of the strength pieces. Uh, but it's very practical and it's very applied uh, with, with still doing justice to the scientific underpinnings. So a lot of that comes with the outside resources that we've incorporated into it and then just layered over the experiences of, of many individuals with, with a whole lot of years of experience. So I think that ties it in really well. Uh, it also, I think, leads really well from the first module beginning with the first semester has four modules, all of which set up anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, moving into periodization, programming, progressions, and then, and then closing off in the third semester with four modules more directed at strength and speed. Uh, and then each of those have video libraries with them. Uh, and a lot of it is, it's not necessarily, it's not just the Altus way and everything the Altus does. It's, it's much more well-rounded than that, which, which I appreciate the direction that they chose to go with that instead of trying to push our ideas and, and what we do with an elite population. Uh, it's, it's really more holistic than that. So I think it's, it's come out to be a pretty pretty cool course all online all at your own pace so that works out quite well for most people sound so one thing that you've um recently written about is acceleration i think it was on the Sim- simply faster blog do you just want to talk to us a little bit about a bit more in depth with you guys your principles around acceleration and then we'll get into the um the kind of intricacies of yeah, the programming side of um, things so Stu mcmillan really turned me on to this idea of projection rhythm and rise uh, he was the one who first introduced it to me. And and so for us, those are the three key concepts of acceleration. And for me, you know, as I mentioned, coming from more of a, an S&C background into a track and field environment, this idea and this understanding of projection, rhythm, and rise really expedited my development as a sprint coach. Uh, it lays it out very clearly, from my opinion, and, and touches on the holistic nature that a sprint should be. Uh, and then makes it very simple again for to add meaning and, and reduce complexity for the athletes. So I've really hung on to this idea of projection rhythm and rise, and and it factors into to cueing and the training of every day. Um, and then I'll just change slightly based on on the population that I work with. So I'm fortunate enough to do, especially this winter, do some work with uh, a handful of professional baseball players. And so while I need, I may need to talk to them slightly different or in a different way, then, then I'll talk to the elite sprint population. All the same concepts still apply. And, and so it's, it's first starting with an understanding of what projection, rhythm, and rise actually means, and then building on it from there. So diving a little bit further into those, projection is, is very much twofold. So we're looking at 
the angle of projection off that initial impulse. So we can think of the shank relative to the ground and what that angle may be, as well as the hips projecting horizontally through space off that initial impulse. So as far as the angle, it's, it's a matter of trying to maximize that and, and make that efficient for each individual. Uh, I think some people get caught in the trap of, of this idea that a 45 degree angle is optimal for everybody. But we'll see some elite sprinters with with very good force and power abilities coming out of the blocks at an angle of 30, 38 degrees. And, and some women who may be on the elite side coming out in the high 40s in terms of degrees. So it's really finding where an athlete fits based on their abilities and, and some of its limb length and, and what other factors may come into play to optimize that angle. But a big myth, I think, around acceleration is these short, choppy steps and, and possibly a, an issue with speed ladders. And, and speed ladders may have a time and a place for, for some people or for some objectives, but in terms of accelerating and accelerating properly, I think it you have the potential for some negative carryover from that because we want longer strides. We want hips projecting forward, really allowing the time, uh, whether it be against the, the starting blocks or the ground, to produce some force and get out there. So that kind of covers projection. Uh, building from that, we have rhythm that very much plays in line with that. So if we think about our ground contacts in terms of the rhythm of the progression of the, of the sprint, and we think about this clap being the ground contact, and it's going to start slow and slowly increase with each step. So as the velocity increases, we're going to need to see a change in that ground contact and in that frequency. Also in relation with all that then is rise. So as the velocity is increasing, we need to see a gradual rise of the center of mass of the hips and the shoulders in a uniform nature to allow for the proper force application. So hopefully that lays out sort of the holistic nature between the three and how they all play into each other. And it's really difficult to have one without the other, but by breaking it down into each of those objectives, it can make it very clear for the athletes of what to think about and what to work on, and then try to blend it all together from there. How does your communication differ moving from track athletes to the baseball players that you were coaching over the off season? How do you notice yeah. you change? It was, um, it was a big learning curve for me at the start. So I spent a couple of years with the elite track population uh, really before getting back to any team sport athletes. And so those, those first couple of sessions with the team sport athletes, I wasn't having a lot of success because I was, I think the big mistake I was making was assuming that they had an understanding, uh, uh, at least some understanding of the concepts and, and the principles behind sprinting and accelerating. Uh, and so I would talk to them the same way that the, the sprint athletes that I know have the understanding, where it's maybe a little bit more advanced in the conversation with a little bit less detail a little bit, possibly a little bit less of an external focus for those individuals because they understand what it's meant to feel like and look like and be like. Um, so with the, with the team sport athletes, I quickly found out that for most of them, they have no idea. They've never, <laughs> they've never been taught it. And, and we'll look at the baseball population specifically. They're, they're extremely skilled at baseball, but they're not always the greatest athletes. Uh, the same way that, that our population at Altus is extremely skilled at sprinting, you know, put them on a baseball field they or any other field or court, it's not always going to work out for them. Uh, so just understanding that, that I really needed to dial it back and start at the basics, um, both with how I communicated the ideas of projecting rhythm and rise, 
and then the cues that I gave them. It was just keep it as simple as possible. Start with more of a cognitive understanding and then build on it from there. Sweet. So how does that, obviously communication differs massively. How does the programming differ between the two? Not a lot, really. Um, they all have different abilities and skills to work on. We'll spend a little bit more time with acceleration. It's a big part of our philosophy at Altus with our population uh, than it probably would be necessary with the team sport athletes. But in a lot of ways, it follows a similar pattern. Um, and, and for a lot of that, it's, it's when do we introduce variability and how do we do that? And so start of the year or the start of, of a training camp with team sport athletes, we're not going to throw a lot of variability at them. Um, they'll already have a lot of their own variability. Even our population, after taking two months off or six weeks off at the end of the season, they'll come back and, and not look the greatest and, and lose some of the mechanics and some of that understanding. And so we're not going to start any of them off with, with throwing a lot of chaos or variability at them. But as they begin to, to develop that understanding and lose some of that more innate or natural variability that they have in their movement, then we'll start to pile some things on. So it may be complexes of different drills, um, using different sprint drills in between the accelerations. Uh, one thing that I'm finding a lot of success with and that we've used in the past is, is hurdle board acceleration. So for us, it's just uh, holding a dowel or board on your shoulders, taking the arms out of it. That really seems to target projection quite well. Um, so while we may not initiate that uh, or implement that initially, more through the middle of the phase, whether it's mid-season or it's it's the middle couple of weeks of a six-week training camp, that's when we'll start to insert it and really begin to challenge their stability through those movement patterns and, and see how deep we can get those attractor wells to build. And then we'll pull that away again towards the end. So whether that's the end of a training camp with team sport athletes, we want to pull that away so that they can really try to round things out and, and leave that camp with a better understanding with some confidence in their execution out of a more specific linear sprint for our population. Then it's removing it through the competitive season so that we, we can really, again, just focus on the specifics, take out some of that noise, some of that variability and just execute properly with very specific or specific technical feedback. So it really follows a similar pattern. It's just, it's just the, the time parameters that, that may change around the different populations and, and how much time we have with them. Great. Well, I know we're running out of time, um, so I don't want to push. I don't want to cut it too fine for you to get to where you need to be. But where can um, where can people firstly get the articles that we've we've spoke about, uh, and secondly learn more about you and and Altis and what you guys are doing? Yeah, I'd, I'd just point everybody to to Altis um, as well as Simply Faster. So we, uh, as a staff, write quite often for Simply Faster. So my most recent article went there. And that touches a lot on some of the variability. And it's a bit of a case study of, of a six-week training camp with some team sport athletes and, and applying those concepts. Um, but then a lot, of, a lot of it comes from Altus, like we touched on in the beginning, uh, through all the social media channels, uh, through our website. And, then, and I think what, what typically gets lost is the free content that we have on our Altus 360 app. So I think when I think about that, people think about that, they think of the subscription base to get all the hundreds of hours of lecture content. But there's also a series that we call Altus Shorts that we'll uh, upload onto there. 
and it's anywhere from from two to ten minute videos typically on on various topics. Uh, so another great avenue. A little bit more specifically with my own stuff, uh, I've got a YouTube channel uh, that you can find just by searching my name, Jason Heller, on YouTube. That really started as an exercise library for the remote athletes that we work with, so they can have a better understanding of of different exercises and drills. And that's turned into a, a pretty cool little library. So if anybody's interested in and some of the specifics behind what we program, uh, you can probably find a lot of it there. Uh, and then, yeah, just just the social media, really. Nice. One thing that I forgot to ask that I forget to ask every single week, but books that have influenced your career, life, um, as a coach, as a person. Is there any two books that come to mind when I when I when I say that? Oh man, it's, it's, it's hard to come down to two books. Um, <laughs> but quite honestly, part of that is because, uh, I haven't done enough reading in the last nine months to a year and it's something I need to get back to. Um, but a few, a couple outside of, of sport performance is essentialism, uh, with Greg McCune, uh, as well as mastermind, I believe it is, uh, Maria Konnikova, uh, really enjoyed those two books. And then, and then for me, more in the field, it's, it's just really getting a good understanding of, of some of Bosch's ideas and, and styles and templates. Um, and then going back with some of the older stuff, so science and practice with, with Zassi Orsi, where he talks a lot about the dynamic effort, max effort, repetitive effort that, that plays a big role in what we do. Um, I think those are a few of the, the highlights for me right now. Sweet. Now, I've definitely maxed out my time now, so I'll let you go, let you shoot off, um, but really appreciate your time, Jason. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Jason. Massive thanks to Jason for giving up his time in a hectic schedule over in Phoenix. But also thanks to Valve Performance, Forstex and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks uh, from some big organisations. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And if you'd be so kind to give a rating and a review, if you are an iTunes listener, um, so scroll onto the bottom of the app and uh, an honest rating interview would go down an absolute dream. So thank you very much for tuning in and I will chat to you next week.